everybody's got to eat. And nobody likes getting sick. That's why Heroes toil in the shadows, keeping your food safe at all points, from the supply chain to the point of sale. Join industry veterans Francine L. Shaw and Matt Ragusi for a deep dive into food safety. It all boils down to one golden rule. Don't eat poop. Don't eat poop. Hi, everyone. While Matt and I were at the Food Safety Summit in Chicago, we had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Darren Detweiler. For those of you who don't know Dr. Detweiler, he and his family were victims of the 1993 Jack-in-the-Box E. coli outbreak that infected 732 people and killed four children across four states. But Darren's case was different. They never ate at the focal point, which was 90 miles south of where he and his family lived. Yet his 16-month-old son, Riley, died because of that outbreak. How did that happen? Riley contracted the illness at his daycare from another child, a secondary transmission. Can you imagine? Darren has turned this devastating tragedy into his life's work by leading, educating, advocating, and inspiring others to make our nation's food supply safer. We hope you enjoy this podcast as much as we enjoyed speaking with Dr. Detweiler. So, Darren, first of all, do you want to go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself and background for the people that are listening that don't know who you are? Sure. Well, I wear many hats now. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. I do workshops. I'm a contributing editor and writer for QA Magazine. I'm currently the chair of the National Environment and Health Association's Food Safety Program, and I am a full-time professor at Northeastern University. But for three decades now, I have been a voice in food safety. Since the 1993 Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak, I speak before international audiences, regulators, uh, industry, and you know, really talking about the why behind food safety, the true burden of disease, sometimes the history of what happened in 1993, the story behind the death of my son Riley from uh, E. coli and, and, and hemolytic uremic syndrome during that event. But also, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, when you're in a position where you've observed the changes over the last few decades and you've been involved in helping policy and helping protocol change and helping inspire others, uh, it, it's, it's bringing a perspective that is uh, not like a conflict of interest or biased in terms of, well, if, if there's any bias, it's because it's, it's purely like a consumer academic as opposed to, um, well, I used to work for this company and we used to work for this company. I'm going to speak from that voice kind of a thing. So that, that's, that's who I am and, and why I, I speak at conferences like the Food Safety Summit and, and IAFP and, you know, to make sure that, you know, there's so many stakeholders involved, but let's make sure that the pure voice of just the consumer is also involved. Right. So I, I don't think I've ever said this to you. You were one of my biggest inspirations oh. for getting and I'm, I'm going to get emotional here, and I wasn't anticipating that. Wow. For getting into this industry. Um, boy, I don't get emotional often. No, never. I've never seen you like this. Um, I read your story I, um, about your son. We're at the Food Safety Summit, and um, I heard your story again yesterday. And it's so deeply personal. And what you've taken from your story, your situation— and turned it into, and I've written about this, I've never said this to you, I don't, I don't think, is just so amazing to me. And, you know, I've dedicated my life, the last several years of my life, to food safety. And I often say, if I have even saved one person's life, which I, I believe I have, with all the work that I've done, then 
it's been worth it. Yeah. You know, because we put a lot of time and effort into what we do. And it's just, you know, I, I wish more people took it as seriously as we do. Well, you know, there are so many people I have worked with, uh, like you two, whether it's on a Zoom call or a phone call or in person or or in so many different capacities, bringing up ideas or networking or working on uh, working on a podcast kind of thing. I look at it a couple ways. You know, yeah, I mean, we can't really measure how many lives and families mm-hmm. we impact. And you look at the idea of if there are 3,000 deaths every year, 30 years, that's 90,000 families that are impacted by this in terms of having uh, that empty chair forever uh, sitting there at their family table. And of course, there's also the people who uh, they get sick, they're hospitalized, they may be discharged, but they live with lifelong medical complications. Yeah. And my thinking here is that, look, someone has to do this work. Someone has to inspire the next generation. Because there are people, you know, we were just talking about this last night. There are people who we're running into at these conferences now who are working, they're, they're leaders in their field at this company. They weren't even born or, mm-hmm. or they were in diapers in yeah. 1993. They don't have that kind of, you know, they didn't see the headlines. They didn't see the images on TV. They didn't, they didn't um, experience this firsthand. And last night when I was speaking here talking about lessons learned of the 30 years since Jack in the Box, I think it's important to think about the idea of the next 30 years. Because if you look at the idea of 2053, 30 years from now, Whoever's at the helm of a lot of these companies, a food company, retail, restaurant, uh, service provider, products, whatever it is, most likely would not have been born in 1993. Mm-hmm. So if, if we look at the idea of the true inspiration behind what a company prioritizes in, what they invest in, why they change their protocol, what they define as their legacy, if we lose that element, if we lose the, the, uh, the true burden of disease, the meaning behind this, then potentially we can lose that legacy. We can lose that that direction we've been going in for the last three decades. And, uh, you know, imagine everyone thinks it's going to be better in the next 30 years. We have to work at that. Yeah. We have to work at that. And we have to work at it collaboratively and together. And we have to support each other. Right. And it's I believe there's no one way to do that, to reach the masses. There's no one way to reach right. Everybody, which is one of the reasons we started the podcast from the vantage point that we did, you know. So it's a lot of people are turned off by food safety because it's, it's dull, <laughs> it's nerdy, <laughs> you know it's, what I mean. Yeah. And it's so we we felt we could reach more people if we brought some humor into it. So that's one of the reasons that we. You I know, always think it's weird, and I'm glad you brought that up. You know, food safety messages aren't sexy or whatever, right? But here's the deal: you know, we say to our children, "Look both ways before you cross the street." Or put your seatbelt on before we, we take off in the car, right? Because there's this discussion of an invisible danger, a potential mm-hmm. out there, yeah. right? So why don't we have more of these conversations in terms of, you know, make sure you wash your hands first or make sure it's cooked all the way through or, or you know, read the directions or whatever it is. Because there is a potential. It's as if we don't want to acknowledge that there's a potential risk with food. And yet we know that there is. Yeah. One of the points you made yesterday in your talk yesterday that I thought was so poignant and nobody really thinks of it in that perspective was you talked about the difference between belief and values. And I love for you to, to, to explain that on here because I think everyone in that room had never thought of it in that context. And it was, it was so powerful. 
Yeah, you know, right after that, some people from the FDA came up to me and said that that was such a powerful. <laughs> the point FDA to bring up. is like, yeah. wow, we never thought of it like this before. Well, it's I mean, good. damn. <laughs> you know, so, thirty years ago, I thought this was going to be like a one-time event. You know, I didn't have a sense of we're going to see this over and over again. I have been in a position where I see these outbreaks and I see these companies and they always talk and about how we families. believe. You see right. the families. You see the families. A, because I think that's a big difference too between your role in the industry and what you've played versus everybody else in that room. Everybody in that room, because we're at the Food Safety Summit, everybody in that room is either a, a consultant, an auditor, a manufacturer of some sort of food safety products or they're representing their company in forms of food safety. But very few of us actually have the tangible of actually touching, feeling, talking to victims that are consumers of a product that they shouldn't have gotten sick or died from. And you, on the other hand, you're in that all the time. Right. I talk to parents whose children are in the hospital. I talk to parents who have buried a child. I talk to people who are, you know, years later living with the the ramifications of an illness. And, and, and um, you know, I, but I also see the in the media the corporate response, whether it's in a magazine or a newspaper article or live on TV sometimes, right? And you hear this. Well, you know, we want to assure everyone that we believe in food safety. And every time I hear that, it's always accompanied with, we're going to go back and we're going to review our training and our protocols and we're going to put someone in charge of this and we're going to, we're going to prioritize this. I always, in my mind, what I hear is we weren't doing it all along, but we do believe in food safety. If they valued food safety, right, then there'd be things that could be measured and they would have valued it. It would have been like a, a, um, a compass for them in terms of what they do day in and day out. I've even seen companies where food safety is not on their mission statement, or sometimes it is, right? So we manufacture food, and yet there's other companies that say we manufacture safe food. And when it's in their mission, when it's it's a driving value of every person, every shift, every product line, every facility, whatever it is, you see it being a difference. You know, there are... Examples of corporate executives, CEOs, even after a major outbreak in which the company lost a lot of money, a lot of people are impacted across many states, you find out that this CEO still got his or her $15 million, $12 million mm-hmm. Christmas bonus. Well, that's because while they val- or they believed in food safety, if they had valued it, Maybe they would have included food safety as one of those metrics that yeah. is used to determine Absolutely. if that CEO gets that extra Christmas kicker bonus kind of a thing. Absolutely. And I know this is like, okay, well, that's how does that help consumers? In the big picture, the difference between believing in food safety and valuing food safety, I think, is what sets a safer company aside from a company that you need to steer clear of. Yeah. So you and I had a conversation a week or so ago about one of the fallacies, if you will about when a tragedy, foodborne illness, happens to a family, and it involves the, the legal ramifications, if you will, um, from the company aspect and the perceptions of, you know, the payout, if you will. Um, do you want to talk about sure. that a little bit? Yeah, because you get rich quick, right? Uh, everyone does. <laughs> and, and there's Money all, in the bag. There's these, these Hollywood-worthy court cases in courtrooms with juries. 
so there's there's a, a I think a for some people maybe a rude awakening. There's I can count the number of court cases where someone has lost a child or of any any family member um, or has been gravely ill and has taken a company to court and gone to trial. I don't even need one hand because there's never been one of those court cases. Um, oh, it's never, never has gone to trial before. Never. Got it. Now there's been uh, legal cases where people have got like, like for instance, with the uh, peanut corpse of America, right? So the peanut corporation of America, I was there. I was, I was in the courtroom. None of those charges had to do with anything along the lines of anyone being harmed or killed. Right. Cause it wasn't penal. It was, it was a lawsuit. It was a criminal, right? Right. It was about uh, obstruction of justice, wire fraud, entering adulterated products into commerce, but there were no actual charges. Because everything is settled? Always. Yes. Everything oh. is settled out of court. Everything is always settled out of court. You have, you know, you have a person who gets sick here from a company that their headquarters is somewhere else. You have uh, so many companies with these big lawyers. And, and I'm not saying that it's wrong for them to have lawyers, but the reality is, so there's a, there's a so the first reality is you never see someone go to court. It's always settled out of court. The second reality is people think, oh, this is like a big payday in terms of money kind mm -hmm. of a deal. Well, there's a big difference if you are sick and you've completely recovered. Mm -hmm. You're sick and you're going to have lifelong medical complications and you survive. Or you lose a child. Of those three, this is reality. Who do you think ends up uh, being awarded through this out-of-court trial? Here's a bit of a reality check, and I'm going to put it in terms of uh, like an A, B, and C choice. Choice A is you get sick from a foodborne pathogen, and it can be proven, uh, and maybe you're in the hospital, maybe not, but you're, you're not going to have long-lasting medical complications. The second scenario, or B, is that you're hospitalized, it's proved, you can make it a connection, and you're going to be, maybe you need a kidney transplant, you have lifelong medical complications, maybe you had a stroke, maybe you have cognitive or physical delay because of uh, you, you were sick so young of an age. And then the third category is, again, someone who got so sick that they actually died. Of those three categories, again, in terms of the misconceptions, misbeliefs, uh, who do you think ends up being paid the most money in an out-of-court, uh, uh, maybe paid in an out-of-court settlement? Who do you think? The person with the lifelong... Complications. Complications. Yes. Get paid the most. Well, I am talking with two people who have a little no, bit more industry knowledge. <laughs> but, but that's true. So there are people who get mildly sick and it can be proven and they think, oh, I'm going to make millions from this. It's like, no, you're not. Right. And there are people who make money from, uh, I say make money. They're able to, to find compensation uh, because of the ongoing lifelong medical complications. And in many cases, it's never enough. It's never enough uh, compensation for that. And then the least amount there is uh, those who are dealing with the death of someone. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, what ends up happening is that the lawyers for these companies will come in and they will do a, an assessment. Uh, and so my son was 16 months old and they do an assessment. They look at uh, the mother's education, the father's education. They look at 
the how much money the mother has ever made and what would be her lifetime earnings. They look at how much money the father's ever made and his lifetime earnings. Uh, and then they come up with some formula that says your child is worth this much money. And wow. it is much lower than anyone would ever guess. Right. Well, and at that point in your life, you were very young. I was so 24. it wouldn't be what it is today. Yeah. Well, so, not only in terms of my life, but in 1993, there was literally no case study. There was no right. precedence for it. So I would, this is, sounds bad. I'm not going to say that I would be happy or, or I would acknowledge even that if my son died today, in reality, I recognize that if my son died in 2023, that the legal world and the pressure on the companies and and the 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 consumer pressure would probably push that number up but in 1993 it was assessed and here's what plus the medical bills this the the sheer cost of the medical bills when your child's in intensive care unit mm-hmm. a pediatric intensive care unit yeah. at a children's hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks uh, and then the funeral bills and of course the lawyer bills um, so it ends up being one of those things where a, you're like, is that it? And then B, why am I even suing this company? Because I'm not going to get my I'm not going to get my child back. Right, right. But you get this sense of this is the only course of action I can take at this point. Right. And there is no dollar figure on human life. No. There is no value. You can't place a value you on know human that. life. You <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah. And you know, so there is a small dash. On his grave between 1991 and 1993. And I have very few photos and videos of his lifetime because he was 16 months old. And it was 1993. We didn't have cell phones taking, you know, millions of pictures and minutes of videos, right? So I've been in a position, and I, I believe I've had this conversation with both of you. I've chose what I do since then, 30 years now, in terms of I don't need to have someone determine that value of his life. I'm going to create that value. Right. I'm going to create that meaning. I'm going to create that, 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 um, I believe I've talked with you two about this before. I'm not going to sit around and just accept the idea that some external person is telling me what the value of my son's life is in my world. I wanted to really create that value and there's different ways of creating that value. Um, you know, finding out that my son's photo was on the walls at the USDA for years and years and years. Just the sheer act that the USDA involved me in some of the work with their pathogen reduction program and the labeling. Uh, the fact that here, you know, to hear over the last 30 years, all these different events and conferences, trainings, that kind of stuff, you always hear about Jack in the Box. And that is significant. Um, to, to be able to talk before audiences about this and to... I did a TED talk about this, about how my discussion about my son's changed. You know, you, you go through a grieving process mm-hmm. and you want to tell the story of your son. To some extent, I still tell the story of my son, but what I choose to focus more on is the next 30 years or how can I give words of wisdom or how can I validate and even thank those people in the food industry who are doing this work? How can I help call out the courage and the Herculean effort of what they do and be that person who, look, if, if, if I can be someone who I can never get my son back, but I can tell you how important what you do is and I can support what you do and I can help um, inspire the next generation of, of people who decide that this is something for them, 
that to me is so much of value. And I'll, have to, I'll, I'll admit selfishly, well, most people say you lost your son. I did lose my son. But I don't ever want to live in a world where someone looks at me as having given up on this and says that your son lost his father. Well, um, you've done a fantastic job, which takes us into the next, seg- is a great segue into the next com- part of the conversation is, you know, you just worked on a documentary, which is about to be released. And um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about that sure. documentary. So there's a book called Poisoned that was written about the 1993 Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak. And it was actually really about another, uh, another victim uh, who survived. This is a client of Bill Marler's. Uh, but the author did talk about some of the other things that were going on. And um, the book's done very well. Yeah, very and well. And Netflix, I, I'm, I'm very honored that he even you know, talked about my son in there. Netflix decided that they wanted to do a documentary based on this. And uh, so when they were in the early stages of this, uh, I was put into contact with the producer because I had written a book called Food Safety Past, Present, Predictions, which, yes, there's a couple chapters that talks about 1993, but there's other chapters that talk about the situations and the changes in policy and other outbreaks and cases since then. So they asked me to work in a capacity of um, like a technical consultant behind the scenes to help them understand uh, uh, the, the last 30 years as well. And then they wanted me to be on camera talking about what was going on in 1993, the story of my son. And then again, we talked about Peanut Corporation of America. We talked about uh, Leafy Greens. We talked about all these other issues as well. And they did a bit of a follow-up in terms of where am I now and, and, and even including footage of yeah. me speaking at a conference. So they, they ended up including a lot of footage of me talking about what happened in 1993, being that kind of consumer uh, perspective, talking about other cases, talking about uh, the Peanut Corporation of America, uh, leafy green outbreaks and recalls, and even antibiotic resistance with, with chicken and salmonella, and looking at the idea of the future. What's, what's the future look like? I was very surprised. I looked at the documentary before its world premiere in, on June 9th. At, June 9th is the date? Yes, Tribeca Film Festival in New York, June 9th. And when was when will it um, when will it air on Netflix? It's supposed to come out this summer. Okay. And you know, I look at it like this. You know, when when we're at these conferences, it is great. And there's a lot of important people to listen to and to include in the conversations and in our audiences here. You don't see consumers here. No. Right? You know what one of my big goals, my big dreams for this documentary is? My hope is that this brings this topic to a completely different audience. The average family, the average consumer, the, you know, people who work in the food industry, whether it's in retail restaurants, you know, they see this documentary and they get a sense of, wow, this is still an issue. This is an issue because I learned about E. coli on my son's deathbed. What if a whole new generation learns about E. coli and food safety and the state of food safety and about the heroes out there trying to keep their food safe, not when it's too late for them, when it's too late for their family? Because fact of the matter is, people that come to these conferences are people that already know about this. Right, right. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's, Right? it's It's like going to the movie theater and seeing on the big screen a commercial about how you should go to the movie theater 
but you're already there. <laughs> right. so, so when we had these conversations with people, it's like a captive audience. We're already in the food industry. And the people that really need to know and understand are the people that are working yeah. while the executives and the yeah. people that are attending the conferences are here. <laughs> well, I hear that. You know, I said 1993, this is 1993. It's the United States of America. How could this be happening? Uh, and just a few months ago, I was talking to a mother whose child is in the hospital and she goes, this is, it's 2023. This is the United States of America. How can this still be happening? I thought this was, I thought this was a thing of the past. And I, I, I hope that this documentary really sheds light. We can look at back at many different documentaries on similar topics, whether it be about guns or environment or, or, you know, labor laws or whatever kind of thing. Some of these really powerful documentaries that really inspire people to start talking about these topics, to ask questions, to read more about this, to engage in conversations. And it's not just adults. Yeah. You know, middle school students, high school students, they watch these documentaries. And then these little snippets end up in your social media. Mm -hmm. And someone watches a little bit about this on some TikTok video or some Facebook video. Although I don't think young people watch or uh, go to Facebook anymore. But you get it. Social media is going to, to play out in terms of how it's going to increase the reach. And again, my biggest goal is if people can learn about how important food safety is and how it's still a risk out there and not do it in a situation where they've already been harmed or it's too late. You're absolutely right. And social media, speaking of, this morning there was a session on social media and food safety. You were, yeah, were I saw you there? It. Yeah. Did you, did you attend or were you not? I was, you back, I was the back of the audience. So... They did a great job on that. And, and it's true. I mean, it's absolutely true. If you want to reach the masses, social media is the way to do it. Well, and social we media, it, social media didn't even exist 30 years ago. No. <laughs> well, yeah. well, and like they said, you know, if it had, Jack in the Box may not still be here. That's probably true. <laughs> but it's the classified ads in the newspaper <laughs> right. as close to right. social media. <laughs> but we've watched the growth of a food safety culture parallel the growth of social media. Yeah. And I honestly believe that this is one of the reasons why today consumers are considered to be stakeholders today, more so than they ever were 30 years ago right. because of social media, because of learning about this and, and talking about it and responding and, and generating new ideas. And, you know, you looked at the, um, like, for instance, there was the pink sauce and the, yeah. all these different yes. things and, P, and and Daily Harvest, the crumbles. Oh, yeah. And, and there were people that had nothing to do with food safety, but they were talking about how they lost trust in this or shouldn't they have been labeling this or, or oh, you're going to get sick from this or I got sick and I'm in the hospital and look what happened to me. So it's almost as if these people had nothing to do with food safety, world, work, culture, whatever. Now, all of a sudden, they're generating these messages out there for other people. That, to me, was one of those finger on the pulse of do people outside of the industry really think about food and talk about food safety? I'm hoping for that same kind of reaction with this documentary. I think, I, I truly believe that do, the documentary is going to be huge. I, I think it will be. I hope it is. Well, you I, know what, and, when you have a documentary that's huge about basketball or it's huge about NASCAR, well, not everyone's into basketball or NASCAR. But everyone eats. Everyone eats. Everyone we eats. All eat. Yeah. And none of us want to die from eating. None of us want to die from eating. <laughs> none of us want to eat poop. And none of us none want, us to, want eat to eat poop. That's a plug. That's a plug. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so what do you, um, ha having obviously read the book and having been part of the, the, the Poison documentary that's going to be coming out this summer, 
What do you see are the two biggest differences between the book and the documentary? I'm just, I'm just curious what you think are the two, the, the biggest differences are between that. Uh, this is one of those situations where you'll see, if you watch the documentary and then you read the book, you'd say, wow, the book doesn't cover everything that the documentary covers because the book was really never about the 30 years since. Oh, right, right, right. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, you'll see in the book and in the documentary, Bill Marler. So there's a lot of things you'll see, a lot, a lot of conversations that come, but the documentary builds upon that book and really looks at, again, moving forward to today. There's some very recent conversations, recent issues that are talked about. There's a lot of different uh, voices, uh, regulatory industry that are in the documentary that, that, that are not um, present in the Because the your book. son is mentioned in the document, in, in, in Poison, the book, like in one line. Right. It was like, and there was even a secondary uh, exposure and a child died from that, Detweiler. And it, that's like the, right. <laughs> but right. it seems like you have more of a role in the, in the documentary. You know, when you look at the idea of, of what do people remember from 30 years ago and what impacts people? Um, the book really was more about the case of Brianna Kiner, who, right. who mm-hmm. lived, uh, had significant medical complications, uh, and it brought in these other And I'm not saying that the, the author of the book was wrong for not going, but you can only go into so much detail about all these different cases. Even if you read my book on food safety, past, present predictions. Well, I, I, I mention other people, but I don't go into their stories uh, because my lens is looking at it in terms yeah. of my own perspective. And so that's what I was able to bring to the documentary. But I also think that one of the things that ends up happening with victims and families is that not every family, not every victim wants to share their story. Not every victim mm-hmm. wants to you know, talk about it with others. They don't want to testify. They don't want to talk with the media. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right. I'm just saying that not everyone does that. And I've chosen to be uh, a voice, not only in terms of my experience and, and what happened to my son, but I realized like, here we are again, we're at the food safety summit. I am representing this kind of consumer voice. Mm-hmm. How many other people here are doing that? Bill. Well, I mean, he's I from, he, yes, a but from, from a lawyer perspective, yes. Yes, right? Right. And I'm not saying he's not doing that. Right. But it's like, but I'm not a lawyer. I don't work for this company. I don't work for that company. I don't work for this company or, you know, I'm not selling this. I'm not offering that. I don't do this kind of a thing. And so one of my observations is here we are 30 years later and I look at so many events we go to and we don't often hear a victim or the family of a victim standing on stage sharing what it was like. Because yeah. it's, un- it's very uncomfortable to it. it is. I'm certain. You know what I mean? I can't speak from experience, but I can only imagine. I just have one more question. Yeah. We had a conversation about this just a couple of weeks ago, kind of disagreed a little bit. Had Brianna Kiner, Brianna Kiner died, do you think the after effects and the um, things that have, have happened since in food saf- safety, the magnitude would have been the same? Because there was so much exposure because of the dollar figure of that lawsuit. And yeah. the um, just that blew up the magnitude of so, this case. Right, because of, right. the, of the $98 million that was awarded to the families, 15.6 went to one person. And that was what the media kind of blew right. up, right? right. Uh, there was 
a small amount of media coverage in terms of, of, of settlement for my family, which was extremely small. In fact, the lawyers, they initially came out with a higher amount, mm -hmm. but said that I could never talk about what happened. Right. It was basically a gag order. I said, oh. um, Which I'm not diminishing anything that happened to anybody right. else because, my God, the other people, they, they, they died. She lived. Yeah. yeah. But she's, she became the face. Right. Basically. And, and that amount was based on the idea of the expected cost of medical coverage and, right. and care for her kind of a thing. But, um, yeah, that definitely was something that caught uh, the media's attention. Mm -hmm. And we're in a world where we have most media attention after an outbreak of recall in terms of how did the company recover. Mm -hmm. We rarely talk about how did the victims recover. That is but so true. There's oh, my gosh. One more observation, though. So... You know, the, the Peanut Corporation of America trial and then the sentencing, mm -hmm. right? So you go from DeCosters, the, the father and son owners had three months, mm -hmm. to the CEO of Peanut Corporation of America, 28 years, his brother 20, the, the, the new head like three, six, and five for the right. plant managers and QA manager, right? It was a shock. I was in the courtroom. It was a shock. Some people thought it was too much. Some people thought it was too little. But you go from three months, and 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 I talked to Stuart Parnell. He's like, yeah, you know, it'll be it'll blow over. It'll be a small sentence, if anything, kind of a deal. And don't worry about it because you know, three months, right? And we were talking about Jack in the Box, and he goes, yeah, those guys should have gone to prison. Here's the kind of wild piece of information I want to add. In 1993, with the Jack and Boxy Coley outbreak, CEO of Jack in the Box admits on camera that they violated the law in terms of the minimum cooking temperature and that people got harmed and four people died. No state or federal charges were filed against the company. Imagine the impact that those charges would have had all those years later because Peanut right. Corporation of America was a lot, you know, that was what? Almost 20 years later? Yeah. Mm -hmm. more, than, more than 20 years later. Yeah. Right? Uh, 22 years later. You still look at the idea of, so the outbreak has a long impact on the culture of food safety and careers and, and companies in terms of food safety. The, the amount of, of money for that one settlement was big attention grab. But that, that deafening silence of the lack of, of legal ramifications for the company back then sent an, a powerful message to industry that it was like, it's okay. You can literally kill people. Absolutely. What's the worst that could happen? So when that Parnell situation happened, you know, my mind was it's about damn time. Right. Except, <laughs> except realize that that 20 years in prison was not for, exactly. getting, for, for harming or killing no. anyone. Right. Right. And while some people don't realize that, at least there was some kind of ramification. Right. You know right. what I mean? At least there was some kind of ramification. At least they're finally being held accountable for something. Right. You know what I mean? And, you know, you saw with Chipotle the idea of $25 million, which to you and me, $25 million may seem like a big amount of money. But for that company, no, it's actually not really that much. But that was just fine. the fines. That was just the fines. If you look at their total loss of profits over 15 quarters of stock market trading billions. years, billions, but Hey, the CEO still got his $15 million Christmas. Payment. Yeah. 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 You know, so it's like, it's really weird when you start looking at this money issue, right? 
and the fines and the, the penalties and the punishments kind of thing. But imagine how confusing it is for the average worker of these companies. They're trying to figure out, is this really a serious thing? Can I really be held liable or, or is, is this a responsibility I need to take for, for, uh, uh, for granted or is this is a real serious responsibility I need to take? Because to some extent, you have companies that prioritize food safety and do anything they can. And I have to tell you, and I'm going to tell your audience as well, there are far more companies that are great examples out there day in and day out yes. than there are the squeaky wheel companies. And by squeaky wheels, I mean the companies that they, they go under the radars for not only accidental, but for blatant flagrant violations. And they, they know they can get away with it and just operate with this. A, you know, only a few people in the big picture of, the, of, of, of things uh, will find out enough information to be able to prove that their illness was tied to this food, which was tied to that company. Right. Some 80% of, of people who get sick with a foodborne pathogen will never find out what actually was that caused it. Uh, and in most cases, it's people who you work with, Bill Marler, who um, they, they find that out. But there are companies that literally go, hey, chances are they're not going to tie it back to us anyway. Chances are they're not going to give us that much of a fine or a fee or punishment anyway. Chances are it's not going to go to trial. Chances are right. that kind of stuff. It's like, well, yeah, you can't operate with the chances are kind of a thing. Uh, if you truly value food safety, um, you, you don't look for loopholes. You look to make sure that you close as many loopholes as possible. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I agree. There are many more good companies yeah. than yeah. there are the ones that are trying to get away with things. I, I have a question for you. I've always kind of wondered on the mental health side of things for victims like, like of, of you, like a family members. I mean, you weren't the victim, but you were the victim as a parent of a, a 16 month old child that, that, that passes your family was a victim of it. Um, what does that do mentally about your choices of food and is there like a, like a PTSD type of a thing with food after that? And not just from your experience, but some of the other families that you've talked to, like, are there, uh, like is there uh, worry about that ongoing? And, and what are the damages that that has? You know, I didn't eat red meat for about 20 years. For over really? 20 years after that. And it wasn't as if it was like, oh, my 20 years is up. <laughs> right. I'm going to eat beef now. I'm going to eat beef now. <laughs> I need a steak. I've done my time. I swear there's three main questions that I get asked all the time. And mm. one of them is, what do you avoid? Right. It got to a point where if I was to avoid all the foods that have ever been a culprit behind an outbreak or recall and all that kind of stuff, like there's nothing left. Right. And so if I just say, oh, I'm just going to avoid red meat, well, that's a weird fallacy because, you know, in 1993, I started hearing news before my son got sick. Well, we'll just avoid going to restaurants in Seattle. Well, we'll just go avoid going to hamburger restaurants. Well, we'll just avoid going to Jack in the Box. And I had no idea about person-to-person contact, the idea of, a, you know, someone getting sick from another person. Right. And my son got sick from uh, – coming into contact with someone else's daycare center who did get sick from eating the hamburger there. And so you, if you, if you kind of blindly go, Oh, well, these are the things I can avoid. That'll make me safe. Right. That leads you down an interesting path. So yeah, in terms of the foods that I eat, definitely my um, marriage did not last the distance. Uh, We stayed together for about 20 years. 
and um, it never recovers. Uh, we had another son, two sons after that. And the first son, some people might get the reference. We treated that son, his infancy, his childhood, his toddler years, like he was a boy in a plastic bubble. Well, you know, yeah. that idea of there are pathogens and viruses out there that we are learning about. And, and we're very careful about that. Um, uh, I am remarried and I recently learned of something that my wife does. And I would imagine that there are people in your lives that might do the same thing. And if you're not aware of this, you need to keep your eyes open. If ever we go into a restaurant, I always go, where do you want to sit? She always sits such. And it took me a while to realize she sits on one side of the table so that I'll sit on the other side of the table. My husband and I do that. Such that I'm facing away from the kitchen. Because she knows if I'm facing the kitchen, I'm going to be going like, like, like this <laughs> yeah, the entire time. Yeah. I always want to see the door. I don't want to. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, and I caught on. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. You always see me such that I'm, look, I'm not looking at what's going on behind me because you want us to enjoy what's going on. And there's so many things that end up creeping into our lives that, that um, you know, as, as families that have survived this kind of thing and are dealing with this, that you start questioning things differently. You start looking for things. But, you know, no matter what I do, I'll never bring back my son. Right. So there's an element of how do I measure, how do I create those moments where I'm there, you know, with my son. And what I do here is part of, you know, what I do with my speaking and writing and consulting, all that kind of stuff is in a way, I'm still kind of, you know, inspired by my son and doing this in his name. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I, every year I think that this will be the last year. It's this big. It just keeps growing. It keeps growing and growing and growing in terms of, you know, it used to be, it was all about meat and poultry. And then it, now it's about less about meat and poultry. It's more about FDA regulated foods. And then you start focusing on commercially packaged goods and ready to eat foods. And then you have hybrid retail and you have third party shopping and third party delivery. And now you have, you know, companies sending you partially packed. It's like the, the diversity of the problem just keeps making it it's, more and more and more of a complicated yeah. issue that it prevents it from having that one simple silver bullet of a solution. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. And I just keep trying to do what I do. And and you know this. One of the things that happened over the last 30 years is the media catches on to, oh, there's a new thing to be afraid of. You know, news at 11, <laughs> you know, uh, outbreak tied to this, news at 11 kind of thing, or check out our headline, whatever. Every time I see the news about this, it's like picking a scab. It's like reopening a wound. It's like, re and I talk to families and I'm on the phone with them and I relive smells. I relive yeah, yeah. sounds from that hospital room. I relive certain things. And sometimes it's like, wow, I haven't thought about that aspect in a long time. Or, or um, And it just hits you in the face. It does. Yeah. It does. And I think that people need to realize that, that, Time doesn't necessarily make these things go away. And no. that, again, there's probably some 90,000 families out there that are living with a chair forever empty at their table that, that don't have the opportunity to do what I do. And so I take what I do very seriously. It's, it's a very humbling, and I believe it is something that I'm not just – I realize this over time. I'm not just doing this for me or for my son or my, for my family. I'm also doing it for all the other victims and the other families that, that don't have a voice at the table, a seat at the table, a, 
a place on the stage to do this. When I tell these stories, when I impart knowledge, when I inspire others, I'm trying to do it, if you will, in, in, uh, in honoring all these other victims as well. Right. right. We always end our podcast with a myth. Can I say something oh, first? Yeah, yeah. I just want to say something first about how our jobs impact our lives just in every day, the everyday aspect. And this doesn't have anything to do with food, but one time, and this is why I laughed, one time my husband and I were on vacation and I worked in the retail world before I, you know, started doing what I do now. And we were sitting in an airport one time. We had a lot of time. And we're sitting in the airport one time and I'm looking at the ceiling and I must have been looking up there for a long time. And my husband's like, what are you doing? I said, do you know how many burnout light bulbs I have here? He's like, are you serious? Sitting there counting the burnout light bulbs because it's like somebody needs to change these. This is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) It's just those small things from your industry that you do in addition to, you know, just the everyday. I mean, you know, I've now worked in the, the food safety world for a long time, but, you know, before that. Those were the things that we had to, you know, are the baseboards clean and, you know, the thresholds on the doors. I still notice those things when I walk into a restaurant or an airport or, a, you know, how what details aren't they paying attention to? A number of years back at the same ex- event, it was held in ba- uh, Baltimore at the time. I stood in front of the large audience and I asked, raise your hand. If you've ever been out on your own, you know, this is not work related, but you're out with your family, you're out by yourself, you're at a restaurant and you see something that is, it's not hygienic, it's not sanitary, it's just wrong. And like almost everyone raised their hand. And then I said, keep your hand up if you said something to watch the number of hands go down was crazy, right? And um, what's also funny is that I noticed myself like, well, if I don't say something, right, then it's as if you're voting with your dollars because you're still paying them, even though they were doing something mm-hmm. wrong. You you validate that it's okay if they cross-contaminate or it's okay if they violate this kind of thing. And so I was at another event and go to the airport and someone else from the conference was there. We go and we get a bite to eat at this restaurant bar at the airport. We're sitting there and I watch the guy, he grabs a glass because I was getting like an iced tea. First off, he scooped up the ice (laughs) with the glass and then he filled it up and then he brought it out to me like this. Oh my God. With his fingers in my cup, right? And I go, excuse me, I don't mean to be a person that tells you how to do your job, but let me tell you how to do your job. (laughs) I don't want this glass. Please take it back. You see that scoop over there? It's there for a reason, you know? And I asked him, do you know why you're supposed to use a scoop and not go like this? And by the way, do you think I want your finger in my cup kind of a thing? And and so the guy I'm there with, right, from the conference is like, wow, you don't stop, do you? I'm like, well, because these things are happening and people take it for granted that it's okay to do yeah, these things. Right. And if no one says anything, then guess what? He's going to continue to do right. that behind the counter. Right. I've always said I can walk into a restaurant and tell you what the manager's strengths are by what the employees are doing. (laughs) (laughs) Just from all my years in the industry. You know what I do? This may sound like it's either ridiculous or it's obvious. If I know a restaurant because I go there all the time and I'm happy with them, their, their culture, it's one thing. But if I go to a new restaurant, the first thing I do, I go to the bathroom. 
Yeah. Because if the bathroom, the most public facing place is a disaster, I don't even want to know what's going on behind the doors in the kitchen. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So I interrupted you, Matt. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. So um, uh, we end every uh, episode with like a myth or, 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 or something fun like that. What would you say is a, one of the food safety myths? And it could be industry wide or it could be a consumer wide that, uh, that just to kind of drive you crazy or pet peeve or something. Uh, there's two things I'll say. One is that you either get sick and recover or you die. We don't often talk about those who are discharged from the hospital, but they never truly recover. They'll never have the same quality of life that they had before they got and sick. And this is physically, not just mentally, too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've talked with parents who say, you know, oh, I have friends and family who tell me I'm so lucky my daughter survived, yet her daughter will never walk and talk and live independently and, and have, you know, the, the normal experiences because of how uh, damaged her body is yeah. from this disease. The second myth that I'll add is this idea that too many times I hear people say, we have the safest food supply in the world. We have the safest food safety in the world, whatever. I I get it. And I'm sure there are some metrics out there that can be used to quantify that. But we can't use that as an excuse. We have to use this as something we have to live up to. Right? We can't hide behind a label. We have to make sure that is true. Huh. I get what you mean. So, so instead of saying we have the, the best, the safest food in the world. We don't have to do anything else. Or, or, and, be, and you just happen to be an outlier. Right. You just happen to be an abnormally. So we're going to deal with you on the periphery as opposed to we declare that we have the safest food in the world. And that should be our value to uphold it as opposed yes. to just, just circling back here. Yep. It's a value to uphold as opposed to a belief. And so then we need to, we, then if that is the case, we need to continue working hard to maintain that value or we'll lose it. Yeah. And, and so then those anomalies, those 3000 people that die and thousands of thousands of people that are sick forever, we didn't do them justice in that they're not just an anomaly, but they they weren't done justice given the values of our country. Right, and I want to make sure there's a clarification here. When you look at things at the microscope, the, the microscopic level and the macroscopic level, I think at the microscopic level, there's very few examples of something where this one person did this one thing that caused this to happen. Right. We look at the bigger macroscopic level in terms of we were complacent with this. We we didn't believe. We, we believed in it, but we didn't value it. We said there was a culture, but, you know, a culture is not the only thing we need. A culture is to work with all these other tools and resources and policies and laws and, and trainings and protocols, right? So we can't say that we have a food safety culture, that's all we need. Or that we have this label having the safest food, safety, uh, food supply in, in the world, that's all we need. We have to continually work at that. And so it becomes... Uh, our our call to action it becomes our charge not our excuse to say we don't need to do more because as the world of food safety becomes more and more complicated and we've seen that the 48 million americans become sick 128,000 are hospitalized and 3,000 die every year according to cdc those numbers relatively have not changed as estimates from the cdc in 30 years and yet look at all the work we've put into food safety mm-hmm. here perhaps 
we're trying to keep these numbers from getting worse because of all the challenges that keep complicating this issue that we have. And um, so, again, if we hide behind a label or this, this uh, saying that, oh, well, we have the safest, politicians won't vote on things. Politicians won't fund things. Companies won't mm. prioritize and invest in things. They won't put in their mission statement. They won't uh, uh, rethink how to engage all of their stakeholders. They'll think that, again, well, we're doing good, right? Because no one's ever told me there's a problem. Well, again, yeah. that's just, just because you're not listening doesn't mean that no one has told you Yeah, yeah. in many cases. So, again, the first myth is that it's not just binary. You either you know, get sick and you live or you, you don't. There are those people in the middle I, I think we often don't talk about. And then, again, the myth of um, just being able to say, oh, it's okay. We've got the safest supply in the world. We don't need to. We still have the safest automobiles maybe in the world, yet we wear seatbelts and we have airbags. You know, our roads are safer, yet we still look both ways when we cross the street. Um, the football players are safest and, you know, the, the football standards for, for safety standards for players are still the safest ever. But they still wear helmets and protective gear and have doctors. Our food can be as safe as we ever want to call it. And yet there's always going to be bacteria. There's always going to be pathogens. There's always going to be opportunity for failures. And they usually don't happen where you think they're going to happen. The entire journey of food from farm to fork, there's many opportunities for failure to have taken place and to have not been mitigated. But in many cases, what we're finding is it's the last mile of food's journey where it's the most vulnerable. Right. And yeah. we can't place all the responsibility on the consumer. I'm not saying the consumer has no responsibility, but we cannot place all the responsibility on the consumer. Right. Very well put. Anything else you want to add? No. Thank you so Thank you much. very much. Yeah, Thank I, you. we truly appreciate you taking your time to talk to us today. It's been a pleasure. We always advise people not to eat poop. Do you think that's good advice? It is good advice. Uh, <laughs> wash your hands. Uh, use the thermometer. Use a thermometer. Use Cook a thermometer. the poop out of there. <laughs> uh, uh, don't leave food out forever, overnight kind of a thing. If it needs, you know, keep hot foods hot, cold foods cold. But Darren, I've done it a hundred times. I've eaten it and it's been okay. Yeah. That's, that's great. But, you know, um, we live farther from food and food has far more ingredients than we normally have. And, and not everyone, you know, we also live in a society where, you have multi-generational families mm. and the idea of pre-existing medical conditions, yeah. even the idea of having been through a pandemic, uh, you have people with compromised immune systems that are not necessarily as, as strong as they used to be. Right. And, you know, it doesn't take much, you know, you know, I'm going to add another myth. Okay. okay? <laughs> you know, everyone gets sick, but it's the most vulnerable populations, the very young, the elderly, those who are pregnant and those who have compromised immune systems that are most likely to be diagnosed, hospitalized, and yeah. die. But everyone gets sick. And the people who are most involved in the democracy, if you will, of food, they have the voting power, they have the purchasing power, are the least likely to get sick. It's, a, it's an inconvenience. It may cause them to have an excuse mm -hmm. to not go to work today because of a stomach bug yeah. kind of a thing. Whereas the ones who are most likely to become sick and harmed and become some of those statistics are the ones who are least likely to be involved in these decisions and, and in the voting and these things. So we need to work in a, in a society and a, a food safety community where 
We prioritize the most vulnerable victim, the weakest links uh, in terms of our food safety's journey. We don't operate such that, well, it's okay because the average person is most likely not going to get sick. No, we operate such that the most vulnerable person, if we protect the most vulnerable, uh, the most vulnerable consumer, we will protect yeah. the least vulnerable. Absolutely. Consumer. Absolutely. The other way around does not work. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of those differences between beliefs and values. That is really, yes. really good point. Yeah, that was good. So I think we'll end wrap up on that note. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We've talked to, I think we've talked about you in like four of our 12 episodes. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't count. <laughs>